Good morning, everybody. This is Jeff Powell, Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer for Polaris Wealth Advisory Group. Uh, with me is Jeremy Whitbeck, partner at the firm. Uh, today, Jeremy, we're going to do a little role reversal. So rather than you hosting, I'm going to be hosting. We'll make this into something a lot more fun and, and conversational uh, for all to listen to here. Now, Jeremy, one of the things that uh, I've been hearing a lot from doing client meetings with uh, some of our clients is, is asking about the markets. Why in the world are the markets going up? So right now, for example, we've got COVID uh, hitting almost all-time highs. We've got death rates that are almost at the same levels that we saw uh, at the very beginning of COVID. Uh, we have some unrest going on in the White House and some uncertainty of elections. We still have a runoff that's going to be happening out in January, so we still don't know uh, what's going on within that. Yet the markets are climbing. And it's kind of confusing to people. And one of the things that I'm hearing from people is, why is this happening? You know, they're, they're, uh, some of our, what we refer to as equal opportunity worrying clients. They're, they worry when the markets are going up and they're afraid that they're going to correct. And sometimes then they come back to us and they're worried that they're dropping. Well, our equal opportunity worrying clients are, are asking a lot of questions. So I thought today we would talk about that. So uh, if you could for me, maybe give me uh, one of your insights and what's going on, and we'll kind of rattle back and forth with other ideas of what might be driving this market going forward. I think there's there's quite a few things going on here, but it all kind of boils down to sentiment improving and a lot of the uncertainty that we've had for the last uh, several months dissipating. Uh, and that's true on both the pandemic front and then also with the election. But um, one of the things that we're observing is the discount that was applied to the market is starting to dissipate as people become more optimistic with what's happening. And one of the ways that I, I've really seen that manifested is with earnings, for example, that um, company earnings weren't as bad as what uh, people had feared. Um, and in fact, not only were the historical earnings not as bad, um, but also the forecasted earnings going forward, I think are better than what people were hoping for. And certainly there's been a lot of optimism both on the investor side, but also on the company management side. Um, but there's there's been a lot of good things that have been going on and a lot of great things to talk about, but it all seems to boil down to that that despair or that, that discount that was being applied is uh, no longer being applied in the way that it was before. Jeff, I know this is an area that you uh, study pretty extensively and curious to hear what your thoughts are um, as to, I guess, some of the recent shifts that really started at, uh, a couple months ago and then really cemented itself with uh, some of the vaccine announcements that have come as of late. Well, uh, the first thing that kind of comes to mind when, with what you were talking about, and I was going to joke about it, is are you uh, are you telling me the uh, the average Wall Street analyst is wrong with their expectations? Uh, one of the things that I always find within it is that uh, it's more like straight line assumptions, and if there's a, a bump in the uh, in the system, then they tend to get it wrong. So when you've got a market that's going straight up, their expectations are for the markets to continue to go straight back up, and then when you've got something like a worldwide pandemic going on oh my gosh you know now everything's horrible so they set really low expectations and the earnings have been coming in with uh, better than the the uh, very lowered expectations and now that there is a vaccine a two actually three now vaccines that are out uh we are looking at having uh earnings next year that were better than what we were expect or what we had last year and 2022 earnings even higher than 2021 which is promising but you know the biggest thing that, that i'm seeing out there is a, a major shift in leadership uh one of the things that you kind of already were hitting on um with a little bit of this and we talked about this in a couple of our prior podcasts is that 
when a market recovers, so we obviously had the largest drop in the history of our stock market, uh, or the fastest 30% drop, not the largest ever, but uh, the fastest ever. And we, we have some horrible things going on. Uh, we've got the, I mean, we had a 9% drop in GDP two quarters ago, 2.9% drop in GDP. If you're looking what how that compares to, for example, the Great Recession, the 9%, the whole thing all wrapped up in one quarter, and that was multiple years. The 2.9 puts us at levels that we haven't seen since the Great Depression. In fact, these two quarters, if compared to the four years of the Great Depression, are worse than all but 1932. So we do have some bad things, but most people invest based upon future expectations, not what's going on right now. And with the uh, the three vaccines, two of which look very, 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 very promising. And in fact, we're expecting FDA approval here very shortly on them and distribution to start immediately on them. Uh, where you're, we, I certainly a month, month and a half ago was not expecting that. But any, anyway, when you've got a big correction, you normally have one group of leadership that starts you up the path of recovery and then you've got a whole nother group that actually takes you to a different level and a higher level. And so you saw tech be really the, the, the driving factor and communication services, which is kind of a combination of tech and telecom from days past, uh, really be the driving factor. And then some very, very, very specific areas within consumer discretionary. So you have things like Amazon that's driving some of that as well, uh, where you did not see your Nordstrom's, your Macy's, your your Kohl's, uh, a lot of the the uh, brick and mortar stores uh, do nearly as well uh, during the pandemic. So you're starting to see the companies that got really beaten up be the ones that recover. So energy, for example, recovered huge in the last month. Large cap value had the 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 largest one month return in its history uh, just this last month. So you really are starting to see a shift and the things like industrials and the energy and the financials and the areas of the market that we didn't see improving. Certainly been uh, really interesting to watch all that play out. And Jeff, do you mind uh, walking through some of the future expectations? I know that that's been something that's uh, high in everyone's mind. And you mentioned earlier that the markets tend to price the future and not necessarily what's currently happening. What does the future look like based on what you're saying? Well, I mean, we are seeing, uh, typically we have a reversion to the mean that happens. So when you've got as large of a GDP drop off uh, as you, you've seen go on, historically speaking, recoveries can be huge afterwards. And I think that's what you're most likely going to see. So, for example, we had the, the four years of the Great Depression. Um, what most people don't realize is not all of the 1930s was horrible. Like 1934, 1935, 1936. GDP growth was up about, uh, on average, about 10% growth those three years. When you've seen uh, other major recessions that we've had, um, you've tended to see the markets and the economy rebound uh, pretty significantly afterwards. So when we had um, the, the Great Recession, we really didn't because we had a systemic issue going on. But really what we're talking about right now with our current economy is that we we had to shut it down uh, in order to be able to protect our population. There was nothing wrong with the economy going into the recession that we're in right now. Um, it's it's a self-inflicted because we're trying to protect our population. So when we have uh, the ability to to have people back in restaurants and in stores and in 
ball games and everything else, I would say that our economy you know, not only snaps back, but will most likely snap back in a much bigger way. And when you see that go on, you're, you're, the expectations for earnings growth and things of that nature uh, should be significantly higher. Uh, so, for example, we, we track it down on the, the sector specifics. And again, some of the areas that have been really, really depressed uh, in, in days past or really where we're expecting uh, to see significant growth. So uh, really one of the areas that we are favoring most right now is in the industrial space. It, it happens to only be about 10% of the market, but it looks like uh, there is an area that we should see a lot of growth. Um, and also in consumer discretionary and communication services are the areas that uh, that look the most attractive. Beyond that, again, if we're talking about a reversion of the mean, I mean, energy uh, was down more than 50% for the year going into November, is now down only, well, only 36%. But that's a substantial return when you're talking about give, yeah, going from being down 50 to being down 36% uh, in just one month. So we're going to see certain areas that weren't in favor coming back. There's a lot of opportunity there. I would say uh, also if you were looking at travel and leisure would be another area that uh, if we do have um, a recovery with vaccines, that the first thing that I think a lot of people are going to want to do is travel. Um, I don't know you know, what kind of traveling you've been doing, Jeremy, but my traveling has been from uh, my bedroom to my office, my office to the kitchen. I don't think that really counts as traveling. Uh, so I, I certainly would like to be on an airplane going somewhere nice and warm over uh, Christmas break, but that's just not going to happen. Yeah, well, unfortunately, my routine is very similar to yours. Um, I don't think uh, these floors have had uh, quite the uh, traffic patterns what they've had the last several months, but um, anything I can do to uh, do my part to keep people safe and healthy. So, Jeff, um, looking at the different industries, it's very industry uh, interesting um, with regard to then portfolio and tactical management. So it sounds like the logical movement would be to uh, start shifting into those areas. Now that we've had this year play out and we've seen kind of the behavior of people, any recommendations that you'd give to people with regards to their portfolio management and how to react and how not to overreact or anything that we've learned from uh, what we've gone through this year? Yeah, I mean, here's the things I throw out. Uh, first and foremost, uh, do your best to remove emotion from this. Uh, one of the things that we always talk about is bull markets climb a wall for a. So our equal opportunity clients you know, that worry about things when they're going up and saying how much further they can they can they go, and is there going to be a big correction? You know, Polaris isn't trying to dodge the the five ten percent corrections in the market. Nobody can do that. Nobody can do that consistently. You're going to zig when you should zag, and you get hurt. When there's a fundamental shift and what's going on is really where we're looking to to try to avoid downside losses within markets. So if you're sitting on cash, you got to get it working for yourself. And that's number one. So we, again, we have so many people that are saying, oh, well, I'm too afraid to do this. I'm too afraid to do that. No, you've got to get your money working. You've got to be fully invested. The bond market right now is not your friend also. So, I mean, again, start thinking not only about getting your money working for you, but how you're allocating that. Um, so when we talk to people about uh, being afraid of losing money in the market, what they don't realize is that they're guaranteeing themselves. I mean, if you're sitting on an average bank account, you're basically making nothing right now. And you've got about a 2% inflation rate going on. And so what I oftentimes will tell people, I'm like, okay, well, I've got a great investment for you. You know, you give me that million dollars and in 10 years time, I'm going to give you $800,000 back. How does that sound? And I'm like, well, that sounds horrible. I'm like, well, that's what you're doing to yourself right now. 
you sitting there leaving that money in cash, sitting at the bank, what you're doing is you're guaranteeing yourself. The G word in our business is a bad word for the, for the most part, but you're guaranteeing that you're going to lose buying power over the next decade. And on average, it will be, two, I mean, 2% on the low side. I mean, historically speaking, we've seen, an, uh, we've seen inflation more at three and a half. So if you're looking at it from a historical standpoint, you know, Jeremy, you and I have both talked with people about this. We call it the silent killer. So you have a guaranteed loss by sitting there in cash, but it feels more comfortable because your statement looks the same. Or fast forward 10 years, you know, what percentage of the time has there been a 10-year time period in the stock market uh, where you've lost money? To me, I'm going back to like the 1950s. I don't think there's a single time period uh, that you've lost money. I, I can't go back to the Great Depression and look at it, but we're not dealing with Great Depression situations here. We're dealing with a pandemic that's now something that we've got uh, you know, a, a couple vaccines to. So to look at it in this kind of context, I, I just don't see why you don't put your money fully to work for you and, and go forward from there. And again, the allocation matters. Okay, so the ten-year Treasury right now is getting you about ten, uh, at about eight tenths of one percent. So same scenario that we were just talking about about saying, you know, got a great investment for you. You know, instead of it being eight hundred thousand, I'm giving it back to you. In this case, I'll be giving you nine hundred thousand dollars, but you're still losing a hundred grand uh, over a ten-year time period, uh, not including compounding interest by buying a, a Treasury. So you got to really start rethinking where your money is being invested, where the best opportunities are uh, within the markets to, to be involved. And one of the things that we've got to start thinking about in a lot stronger context is again, more equity to fixed income. It's not a traditional you know, rule of thumb way of investing. You can't sit there and say, okay, 120 minus my age, that's the fixed income side of it. That doesn't work in this market. So we really, again, cash needs to be working for you. Allocation, again, what is risk? Is risk losing buying power, guaranteed to lose buying power over a period of time, or is it a one-year downturn? 08 was just a, I mean, fall of 07, spring of 09. It was a year and a half time period where you lost money. We were back to break even by then in 2009. We're obviously significantly up in this current market environment that we're dealing with right now uh, from where we are. Uh, whereas a lot of other investment advisory firms and, and most individual investors are not. So again, looking at this, you got to start pushing in. You got to get that cash working for you. And you got to start pushing that asset allocation far more towards equity than you ever would have historically in the 80s, 90s, or in the 2000s, because the fixed income marketplace is not your friend any longer. Jeff, you, you hit on something that's really key there, and I don't think it can be emphasized enough, and that is that there are two major risk factors in portfolios. Volatility risk, which I think we're all overtrained and hypersensitive to, and hopefully over the next years, over the next decades, people will learn to have a thicker skin there. But the other one, and to your point, one that we're, <clears throat> excuse me, one that we're not very well accustomed to paying attention to is the purchasing power risk. And the reason for that is because we used to be able to very easily beat purchasing power risk with bonds and even CDs and, and bank accounts for quite a while until uh, we cut interest rates as low as we did in 08. However, that is the, the one that's going to get a lot of people, as you mentioned, the silent killer. And I don't think enough people are talking about it. And I don't think there's enough attention there. So I really appreciated your comments just bringing that to light but that is the number one risk factor that most people should be afraid of not volatility 
Volatility takes care of itself with time. Purchasing power risk gets worse with time. And so we really have to address that one um, quite immediately for most people. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Jeremy. I mean, it, I think the, the, the one thing behind it is the psychology. You know, as much as you say that, that people will hopefully, you know, be able to improve upon what's going on from a volatility risk standpoint. I mean, uh, the, the issues that you and I both see is that we have certain clients out there, they get very jittery. Uh, the moment the market start turning south, the first it's a fight or flight situation, and their first instinct is to flight. Um, and by doing that, they're selling, you know, when the markets are down five, seven, ten percent, and they're selling at exactly the wrong time. And then what they end up doing is waiting for themselves to become more comfortable, but at what price? They've already lost the ten percent that they lost. Typically, the markets recover much faster than when they when they're dropping. And so you get a person that's then you know the markets have dropped. Let's say that they uh, let's use our current environment. You know, markets drop thirty percent. We were now nowhere close to that. But again, the average person, it's a three to one ratio of uh, the pain of losing a dollar versus the euphoria of making one. So if somebody's down ten percent, and they're back of their mind and the subconscious of they feel like they're down thirty. If you're down 15, I mean, good God, you're down 45%, uh, they start freaking out when it's nowhere close to that. And so this comfort level of I've got a million dollars and it's sitting in cash and it's not hurting me leaving it in cash for a long period of time. No, it is hurting you. That million should be 2 million or 4 million or 8 million. And the compounding interest of what you should be dealing with is huge. And if you don't allow for it to work for itself, uh, that's really what we're talking about with that silent killer. So that million 10 years from now, because you just left it there in cash and left it there alone is really what we're talking about being a major issue uh, with with uh, losing buying power. And so that's to me the, the part that I look at and I'm most concerned with with people is again, uh, falling into this, this comfort zone of too much fixed income. You know, I just sat down with a, a client and he had great income but his, uh, he bought a premium bonds where his his total return in his bond portfolio was about three quarters of 1% and the average duration was about six and a half years. And he thought he was doing great because of the income. But what he didn't realize that that income comes with a price. And over time, those premium bonds are gonna go back from being over 100 per bond down to par value and mature and he's gonna lose principal value. So he's going to get current income, which is great, but he's going to lose value in his portfolio. And he's going to wake up one day and look up and go, what happened here? And, and, and it's our job. You know, I, I, I'm very evangelistic about this, Jeremy. I mean, to me, it's like the advice that the average financial advisor is giving their client right now is wrong. They're allowing their client to dictate the allocation based upon their fear factor versus what's best for them, okay? It's like letting your kid decide that they're gonna have ice cream every single night for dinner because it's what they like versus what's good for them. And we can't allow this to go on. And, and so all the textbooks, everything else that you were taught when you were learning finance, and I was taught when I was learning finance, it doesn't work in this current market environment. And so unfortunately, I'm not saying that the financial advisors are purposely going in and getting ice cream out. They just have the wrong formula for what's best for a client in this current market environment. And it's our jobs to sit there and think outside the box. But unfortunately, so many people 
are simply lemmings there and not thinking about it in this context. Yeah, Jeff, it's very interesting. And, you know, when we get asked what is going to be one of the uh, biggest issues over the next decade, <clears throat> I think that you just hit the nail on the head. That for people that are retiring, the biggest issue is going to be that they weren't invested properly and that if and when inflation does eventually rear its ugly head, they're not going to be positioned for that correctly. And the retirement that they thought that they were going to have is going to get eaten away by the inflation because they weren't properly protected. Um, Jeff, we had an interesting conversation earlier, and I, I think this will be a, a nice way to kind of wrap up what we're talking about today. And that is the disparity between the wealthy and the not wealthy in this country. And it's certainly been something that's had a lot of uh, press coverage the last several years. And I, I recognize we're not going to solve the world's problems with this, but I am curious to hear your insights as to I mean, what's really happening there. And more importantly, what can our clients do about it and what can our listeners do about it? Well, I mean, yeah, we're definitely not solving uh, this problem today, but it, it, it does continue to be uh, front in mind and front in, uh, uh, in the media's uh, crosshairs as well, uh, talking about it. And so first and foremost, I mean, obviously, you know, one of the things that we probably need to do is lay a little ground uh, on what we're really talking about here. Um, average household income in the United States is just under $60,000 a year, if you're looking at it uh, from a global or from a, an overall perspective. And so when you're looking at it, that's dual income. That's two people working uh, in order to get that kind of income. And so when we are looking at that um, and you are talking about how you're able to, uh, to really kind of drive um, disparity within wealth, disparity within income, to me, it's it's a very complicated issue, but there are some very easy uh, paths to that solution. And the, the first and foremost is education. Um, I mean, if you're looking at it from, from the context of, and, and I'm not saying it's going to be easy to get more people educated. I'm just saying that the answer is pretty easy. It's a, how you backfill uh, the answers is the complicated part of it. Uh, but if you're looking at it from the context of, if you look at the average uh, household income of somebody, and this is one person, average annual earnings per degree, if a high school gets you about $39,000 a year in income, uh, a bachelor's degree, so a, just a, a normal BA or BS from a university gets you $73,000, and an advanced degree is on average is $106,000. So if you're looking at it in just that context, you're looking at uh, almost a doubling in income, uh, going from being a high school graduate to getting a bachelor's degree. Now, I hear a lot of people talking about how expensive college is getting and so on. There's other solutions there. I mean, the community college system or, or the JC systems is a fantastic solution. Uh, here in California, um, a lot of people don't understand, A, how cheap uh, going to a community college really is. Uh, my son, for example, got furloughed uh, for college. So he's off to SMU, Southern Methodist University in Dallas uh, in the spring. But he uh, didn't, I mean, he was accepted into 11 of 13 colleges, but that was his first choice. And so we decided that he should go there. And so he wanted to make sure that he graduated on time. So he's going to community college. He's taking 12 credits and it's costing, I want to say, less than $500 for those 12 credits. So there are really cheap ways for you to be able to get those first two years under your belt period. 
And then if you get good grades at, in the community college system in California, there's an automatic admittance into the UC system. So if you get, I believe, over a 3.0 uh, in the uh, community college system, you're automatically, in, and uh, you can go to UC Berkeley, UCLA, UC Davis. I mean, some of the hardest schools in the country are not so hard to get into when you're looking out uh, and, and entering in, in your junior year. So maybe it's not just your typical traditional college experience for people that are uh, in a more um, a lower income situation, but there are a lot of solutions for them uh, to be able to, to go through at least the California systems. I know that there are other states like uh, Louisiana, a certain grade point average at UCLA, or uh, I'm sorry, that you get into LSU uh, automatically. I know that, that, for example, within uh, the Texas system, the top 10% uh, of the graduating class automatically gets admittance into the Texas school system. So there's ways for people to be able to get in. There's lots of scholarship money that's out there and available to them. But the other thing that I look at is what's going on right now, unemployment rate. If you're looking at unemployment for somebody who is college educated right now, it's 4.2%. Right now, if you're looking at the overall U3 unemployment, it's 6.9. So and then if you're looking at somebody that has a high school education, it's eight. And if somebody that doesn't even have a college education, it's almost 10%. So again, going back into the system, A, there's more income that's there, but also the likelihood of disruption of cash flow during your working career goes down substantially if you're more educated. So those two things together. So you're A, not having to go back into savings when you get unemployed, when we have things like what's going on right now, by having a better education, but also the fact that you're gonna be making more and that there are solutions so you don't have to be so indebted going through college. So that's to me part of the, the, the solution now, getting people there, getting them through the, the K through 12 system, getting them into some form of, of higher education, making sure that money is available to them uh, and through scholarships and other things. I don't have that solution, but to me, the end result is that we've got to push more and more of our population, more of the, the, the lower and middle class into a situation where there's vocational schools, where there's higher education for them to be able to be to, to be doing the jobs that are making more money. Jeff, that's great advice. As you were talking, the only thing um, that I would add to that, too, is just helping people to learn how to have their money work as hard for them as they did to earn it. Uh, too many times we see people that make decent income and they spend every penny of it and they don't do the most important thing with, to create wealth, which is to pay themselves first and to save into their retirement plans, to save into a taxable account. Um, and one of the things that I find very interesting is year over year, they, they talk about how the wealthier keep getting or the wealthy keep getting wealthier, whereas the, uh, the rest of the people are kind of staying put. And the the math um, is very simple, and it's that the wealthy have found out a way to earn in real terms, meaning that their money increases faster than the rate of inflation. And that is what we do for our clients, is we help them increase their money faster than the rate of inflation. And so I always like the adage that if you can't beat them, join them. Um, certainly, uh, there's a lot of uh, um, talk about uh, trying to level the playing field, but one of the things that we can do is we can certainly learn from the habits of the rich, which is to get our money working for us in a manner that beats inflation, that doesn't diminish our purchasing power. And uh, one of the best vehicles to do that is the stock market. And it's kind of going back to earlier, which is why we have to be 
so focused on what our long-term goal is and not let short-term events shake us out of what is probably one of the biggest opportunities that we have access to. Uh, let me close with a, a reiteration of what you just said there. So, I mean, obviously, if you're able to make more money, um, you know, obviously one of the biggest things that we always talk to people is when you get raises to forget your raise and just put that into savings. Uh, do you want to start with doing that on a pre-tax basis until you're maxing it out and then go from there? But, you know, the, the keeping up with the Joneses is is so true, Jeremy. Your, your, your point is such an excellent one. And you don't have to be working in, in white collar uh, some of the largest clients that we have are people that were in blue collar households that didn't know who the Joneses were, let alone trying to keep up with them. And they really lived within their means. They saved, they scrimped, they did everything that they, they needed to do in order to be in a position where uh, they were able to have a very high net worth uh, down the road. And so, again, don't confuse uh, the education that I just talked about, education is a, a huge part of it, but we have some very educated people that we work with that should be much further ahead uh, than they are because they are all about outward appearance uh, and not about making sure that they're saving enough money to accomplish their long-term financial goals. Because at the end of it, there is no such thing as what's your number. Uh, the ING commercial of how much money should you have to set aside for yourself because every single person has a, a goal for themselves individually of what they want their retirement to look like. And that's where you're running your own race. And so to your exact point, I mean, being able to have your money working for you, having it being able to outpace inflation, being smart about it, you know, what kind of mortgage do you have? Um, you know, are you properly insured so you don't get derailed and those things? Um, thinking about things like estate planning, which we are heavily involved with, all of those things. Are, are truly what drive uh, our markets and, and really what have us moving forward here. So I think that's a, a great place for us to kind of wrap up. Uh, we can jump perhaps into a little bit more about uh, some mistakes that people are making within uh, within uh, their not only their portfolios, but also within their estate planning, uh, perhaps in our next podcast. Uh, but for now, I think that we've got a, a great place for us to, to kind of sever this. So I uh, just want to thank everybody for listening to, to this week's uh, podcast. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, and we'll look forward to, to talking with you guys next week. Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, is a federally registered investment advisor. The information, statements, and opinions expressed in this material are provided for general information only and are subject to change without notice. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, is not intended as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security, and is not intended as individual or specific advice. It should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and, if necessary, seek professional advice. Polaris Wealth does not offer professional, legal, or tax advice. All information contained herein is believed to be accurate, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Diversification does not assure a profit or protect against loss. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Polaris Wealth Advisory Group, LLC, unless a client service agreement is in place.